The Word of God says in Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from, there, from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the, in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, there's a little poem uh, I, I sometimes share with my my three-year-old daughter, Haven, um, I learned it as a kid, I think, from these um, childcraft, uh, like little encyclopedia-type books. And it, it goes, more jam, said Junior to his mom. I want more jam, said he. But no one heard the magic word. Mum kept on sipping tea. The jam, the jam, cried Junior, and his voice was loud and clear. I want to spread it on my bread, but no one seemed to hear. Please pass the jam, he said at last. Now that's the thing to say. When mother heard the magic word, she passed it right away. So clearly that, that little poem is intended to teach a child to say the words um, please or the word please. And the word please really is a fascinating word, even coming from the French plaisir, uh, uh, this idea of pleasure behind it. But in this passage, I want to entitle this, this, this episode, Did God Just Say Please? Now, now, in reading it, you probably didn't see anything about God saying please. In fact, this title might seem the most abstract title you could imagine for Exodus chapter 11. And by the way, don't you love the fact that we're, we're planning on getting through an entire chapter today, really picking up the pace on this book of Exodus. Uh, but as we walk through this text, I want to remind you of one of the purposes of Into Your Bible, and that is to whet your appetite for further study. There are going to be numerous times today where we touch on something and we move on simply um, because we're limited in where we can focus in a certain amount of time. But please don't see that as the end of your study of that portion or, or, or that particular verse or that idea but rather let it whet your appetite to just continue to dive deeper in. 
my mother definitely um, taught me the importance of being thankful and the word please from a very, very young age. Now, I know in many cultures, it's not necessarily the norm to say, say please a lot. And I've experienced that. And to me, it's, it's, a little, um, it's a little different considering, considering my upbringing. But please is a powerful word because it really um, it takes away kind of that idea of um, entitlement that, hey, this is just mine. But instead, you're, you're asking for that person to bestow upon you whatever that action is. It's also respect because you're acknowledging your need for that other individual. But obviously, when we're referring to it in relation to God here, it's going to take on a, on a very different angle. Maybe the angle could be described a, a bit in um, a story I had uh, about four weeks ago. Uh, my family was traveling across the world, and we had a layover in the Incheon Airport in Seoul, Korea. And we had just gotten off like a 15-hour flight, and we're exhausted, and we're about to go get on our next flight. And, and for some various reasons of flight changes, we didn't have our boarding passes for the next flight. And so we're standing in this line. We finally get up front to the front of the line. Remember, I got two little kids, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And um, they take our passports, and there's no problem. But then they just decide that they're not going to deal with us right now and give us the seats. They're just going to make us stand there. And when I say stand there after a 15-hour flight with a fairly short layover, a couple hours, we stand there for an hour after an hour of standing at this Korean Airlines desk, I'm saying, please, please consider my children. Please consider my family. They've been standing here. My daughter's crying and they're exhausted. I forget about me, but please consider them. And obviously that word please at that point is taking on a different connotation. There's an urgency involved in the please. There's a pleading involved in the please. But it's because there's an emotional attachment behind the pleas. Now, keep that example in your mind as we walk through this text. And, and I think, I hope that will help just a little bit in, uh, in guiding us. Now, remember, the title is called, Did God Just Say Please? I'm not saying that is the best word, but I think it will convey the heart of God in some way, which is really what I care about here. And that is that I want us to know him more intimately, enjoy him more fully, and, and ultimately glorify him through knowing that. And so this glimpse into God's heart, three things we want to look at. We want to look at when God sends a plague and, and also answer the question, why did God send all these plagues? Why these nine plagues up until now and this final one to come? Uh, second thing is when God says, please, when God says, please, and also looking at why did the Egyptians give the children of Israel their gold and silver? And then finally, um, we want to close with looking at when God stops persuading, which is really uh, a tragic um, final point. But in all of this, of course, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ, which I trust will thrill your heart as it has thrilled my heart um, in preparation as well. Go back to verse 1 and notice how this begins. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more, yet one plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. It's important that, that we just understand that many see uh, this passage, especially verses 1 through 3, as um, parenthetical in the sense that um, it, it's informing the readers uh, about revelation that was given to Moses prior. I guess it could have been 
at that very moment. Um, but if you, if you go back to the end of chapter 10, you see Pharaoh say basically, get away from me, take care never to see my face again. On the day you see my face, you'll die. Moses says, I will not see your face again. Certainly it's possible the Lord and divine inspiration gave it to him at that very moment, but it's also possible he gave him um, this verses one to three, the backing of what he was to say next before uh, what happened in verse 29. Either way, what we see is we see that the, the conversation resume, it would seem, in verse 4 down to the end of the chapter. Resume as in picking up from chapter 10, verse 29. So as you're reading it, kind of understand sometimes the Word of God fills in details for us at a certain point, not in chronological matter, a manner, I should say, but rather in a way that um, we process because, again, it is being written down for our learning. Um, so, so with that in mind, let's look at when God sends a plague. Now, this is the first and the only time in the book of Exodus that we have the actual Hebrew word used for plague, nega. Um, now, back in ep episode 22, and uh, not that I, I think you all will remember, uh, we did discuss the etymology of the word plague um, as a refresher. God has called this period of blows on Egypt. Back in chapter 7, verse 3, he calls it my signs and wonders. And then in verse 4, he calls it great acts of judgment. And then at the end of the chapter, we see it called um, my wonders. In chapter 11, verse 9, we see it called my wonders. And then again in verse 10, all these wonders. And, and so we see scripture refer to it in different ways, though we typically call it the plagues on Egypt or the plagues of Egypt. Um, but scripture doesn't tend to call it plagues. Um, that being said, the, the word plague does come from the Greek word plega, which means to strike or to blow. But here we have the one time the word plague is used in Hebrew. And it's worth us taking just a minute as an aside because in it we will see Christ. See, the first time and the previous time that this word was used was back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 17. Now, I don't know if that strikes you with anything, but that's also in Egypt with the patriarch Abraham, or Abram at the time. And remember, they go down there and Pharaoh's interacting with Sarai, his wife. And it says in verse 17 that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so then what does Pharaoh do? <laughs> he doesn't just say, let my people go. Or Abraham doesn't say, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, get out of here. What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she was my sister so, I so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's interesting that word sent away that's used back in Genesis 12 is going to be used. Uh, it's the same word for sent, which is used twice here in verse 1 of Exodus 11. Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. In other words, the Pharaoh back in Genesis chapter 12, he has one plague or plagues, whatever. He has this, these plagues come upon him. And he lets them go. But now we see this Pharaoh with a hard heart who responds very differently. Now, this word nega, um, again, it's used multiple times in the Old Testament scriptures. But the first is Genesis 12. Second one is here in Exodus chapter 11. And it does refer to a physical blow or a type of punishment. 
and it usually refers to God as the one delivering the punishment. Um, many of the uses are actually found in Leviticus, and they relate to contagious diseases, um, especially the plague of leprosy. Uh, but I want to mention the last mention of nega in our English text. Now, I say in our English text because actually in the Hebrew text, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, and Second Chronicles all contain the word as well, and they actually come after the book of Isaiah. But in our Bible, in English, Isaiah would be the last time you see this word nega appear. And it might not surprise you that it appears in Isaiah chapter 53. It comes up in verse 8 where we read, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Stricken. There you have it. The one who took the blow for us, the one who took the plague for us, he was plagued for the transgression of my people, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that is what we're going to see all the way through is that ultimately Christ took what we deserve. We're not different than Pharaoh. We're not different than the Egyptians. We too have chosen to rebel against God. And yet, in God's mercy, he let the blow fall upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can receive complete forgiveness. And so, uh, understand this word nega, but it's interesting. Why finally on plague blow number 10 is there going to be freedom? Why was there not freedom before this? Why not with some of these other plagues, for instance, when they're all afflicted with boils or, or when their cattle are dying in the fields or, or when, uh, when, when, when frogs are inhabiting their kitchens? I don't know. But does it ever strike you as odd that God chose 10? I'm not going to say I know why, but I just want to briefly, when I say briefly, I'm just going to throw these at you, and then we're going to keep going. But uh, six things that I see clearly that point us to God's journey through these blows so that he might um, reveal something else to both Egypt and also to Israel. The six things are this. Why did God give all these blows? One, deliverance. Deliverance. Why? To set his people free. And when I think about setting his people free, I don't just think, uh, I'm not just thinking about getting them out of Egypt, but also this journey of getting Egypt out of them. In other words, there's this whole process of where their hearts were intertwined with Egypt, with Egypt's gods, with, with Egypt's ways, its culture. And we're gonna, we, we would see that as we journey through the wilderness with them. And we'll see some of it in the book of Exodus. So deliverance to set his people free. And along with that demonstration, to demonstrate his uh, power um, of love, because I'm going to have a different type of power in a minute here, power of love, so to teach his people to trust. And we're going to see his, the people a couple different times. One in Exodus 4 we already saw, and again in Exodus 14, where the people believe. So he shows them his power so that they can know more of his character, know more of, of who he is and what he can do. It's not just deliverance and demonstration. It's also because of dominance to show his power over the Egyptian gods, the gods of Egypt, and how frail and futile, um, completely helpless, they are. It also is a declaration. It's a declaration so the Egyptians would know that he's Yahweh. And of course, that's repeated so many times that they might know. Also, it's direction. 
it points us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and ultimately uh, to our salvation in him. And finally, it also, these plagues remind us of the destruction, destruction, the world's coming destruction. Why? When you get to the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we see many of these plagues in very similar manner. In other words, what's happened before happens again. And the question is, are you ready? Is, are, is your soul prepared for eternity? Good news. There's one who took the blows for you so that you can be ready for that day when the plagues strike this world yet again. But notice verse 2. It says, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, this is where we're going to venture into that second point. When God says, please. When God says, please. Now, obviously, I, I titled the episode slightly different. Did God just say, please? Um, because that's really the question, you know, what word is being used here. But when God sends a plague, and now when God says, please. In English, look at verse 2. It begins, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Now, we certainly don't see anything to do with please in that verse um, from uh, an English standpoint. But the first two words in this verse, really, it's all combined in Hebrew is daverna. And the word daver is to speak, um, which might sound very familiar if you go back to the episodes on the desert and... Um, and thinking about Midbar and the root of Midbar, but the word daver is to speak or promise. So that really which comes from the heart. If you're making a promise, you're, you're making this, uh, you're sharing a piece of your heart. And then that word na could be um, it's an entreaty at times or even an exhortation. Uh, but it's not usually just a word of urgency. Obviously, the connotation of urgency is there. It's coupled in the beseeching. But what I want us to see here is when you put these words together, um, it expresses this, uh, it expresses more than just urgency. There is a heart behind the urgency. There is one who is making the plea itself. Um, now, nearly all modern English translations render um, this word as now, which is what we see here, speak now. Um, but Jewish commentators typically uh, say a bit otherwise. They would say, please, or I pray thee. So think of it like that. Um, I pray thee. Uh, now is in the hearing of the people speak. Um, think of it like that. So I want to ask a different question. As we consider that there's a bit more on the heart of God than is conveyed through speak now in the hearing of the people, but rather I pray thee or, or, or speak, please. Um, my question is this, what's the purpose? What is the purpose of asking for these items? What's the purpose of asking for the silver and the gold jewelry? Wealth in that day um, was generally measured in livestock and land, although obviously gold and silver were also um, important measures of it. And we already know that livestock is going to go out with them for their sacrifices, but also for their provision. But what was the primary purpose of gold and silver? I would say two things. One would be relationship and one would be religion. Uh, we see it in relationship because uh, the, the jewelry was used for dowry um, and then it was also used for idolatry. 
ceremonial objects, which would be used to in some way or another honor their gods. And, and so um, it, it, it's interesting because these are, are, are items which are very much associated in culture with other things which are going on. Um, before we go further into that, though, note the word that's being used here for jewelry or jewels. Um, we have this word kele in Hebrew, and the root is a bit disputed. Is it nakal? Is it kala? Um, but kala is a word used for a bride. So gold and silver vessels and utensils were used during a typical wedding ceremony. And so I think what we actually have going on here, which makes, which makes a lot of sense, by the way, because when we get to the desert, when we get to the tabernacle, what we're really going to see is the picture of a bridegroom and a bride. And in fact, all through Exodus, you're going to see this clear imagery of, um, of a relationship being established, which is just so beautiful. And it puts the law of God in a completely different light and perspective. But when you think about this, when you think about the connotation of jewelry, you think about the connotation of, of uh, asking for silver and gold. Well, what was happening before? Well, what was happening before was the silver and gold of Egypt was being used in the idolatry of their false gods that, that, that Yahweh has just annihilated. Uh, how did Egypt get that silver and gold? Well, certainly it could have come from many different sources. But it's also very possible that part of it was plundered from the, the, the slaves, from the servants that they had. I'm not saying necessarily, I'm suggesting, merely suggesting. And if that was the case, well, um, that was a typical um, practice when one nation was taken over by another nation or one nation was oppressed by another nation. Now today, with the Geneva Convention, uh, conventions, it, it, it's actually um, not allowed to go and to just um, loot your enemy, not saying that doesn't happen, but it could it be that when they became slaves, they gave up the silver and gold. Maybe it was very gold that God had entrusted to, to Abram, Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I don't know, but regardless, what we see here, I believe, is a picture of the pieces that, um, that God wants as part of his relationship with them in the desert, and not to make um, golden images, not to make um, vain idols, but rather to prepare the place that he would dwell with them in their midst, which is, of course, the tabernacle. And we get to that a little later on. So when God is saying, speak now, or please, I beseech you, I, I think we have the heart of God coming out in this text. I really, I really do. In other words, there, there's God calling out for give my my bride what is hers because it's for our relationship not for this paganism not for this false worship um and, and so there, there seems to be a whole another side to all of this some of what i'm suggesting is speculation and i understand that and that's okay but i still throw that out there for you to think through why would god ask of silver and gold why because uh, why do i even ask that question in the first place because what good is silver and gold really doing you in the desert? Well, you say, well, they're going to the promised land. Yeah, it's going to be 40 years, and God does know that. Um, and, and so when you think through this, there's also another practical lesson. I think that that lesson is precious. God could have blasted from heaven what he wanted, but he chose to convey it through his servant, Moses. And I, what, what, what beauty there is in the heart of God that when God communicates things precious to him, he chooses to use women and men like, like yourself and me. 
Uh, we've been entrusted with what is on God's heart. And what's on God's heart? Well, the power of God to salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can just hear the Lord saying, speak now, speak now, please, please, I beseech you, share the hope of the world. Share the grace that I want to give that person. God, you can tell them yourself, now I've chosen you to be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The lesson is very practical. Let me ask another question. Why did the Egyptians give the children of Israel gold and silver? Like, why did they give in, if I can say it like that? I think there's multiple layers on this, and I'm not sure. Um, maybe it's all of them. Maybe it's some of them. I throw them out there for you to do further study. One, I, it could have been a confession. A confession that, yes, your God is God. He's Lord of all. Um, and referring to back to the 10th the, the plague, um, God says in Exodus 12, 12, that he's going to pass through the land of Egypt. That night he's going to strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so there's clearly going to be this confession that um, in some way or another, that whoever this Yahweh is, he's more powerful and he's greater than our gods. Reflecting on the Exodus um, as a whole, in chapter 15, verse 11, you, you hear uh, the, the children of Israel saying, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Um, of course, Jethro is going to say something similar in Exodus 18, but you can just wait until we get to Exodus 18 to hear that one. Um, so I, I think there's definitely confession. Um, later on in Numbers 33, it, it says, On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Uh, another angle would be not just confession, but compliance. Um, God said that this would happen all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 14. Um, so, you know, they maybe didn't see it coming, but God certainly did because he said it was going to happen. There, there, was, uh, there were no indications for any years that, that the children of Israel were going to leave Egypt. Um, but all of a sudden, here's God. He raises up his deliverer, Moses, and bam, passes these plagues on the land, whether they took place over the course of nine months, whether they happened a little um, a little closer together. Um, we don't know for sure. Of course, I suggest probably more than nine month um, approach. But again, I don't know. The point being, though, is in compliance to the word of God. Um, God said it would happen, and it happened. Uh, we, we also can remember back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 22, that uh, we read, each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. So again, not just back in Genesis 15, but even when God speaks to Moses at the, at the bush that was burning and kept on burning, that this is going to happen. So again, no surprise, God said. Uh, a third thing I think would be compensation. A lot of people make this point. They make this point really strongly. They go into detail about it. Um, it's actually probably the one that I'm um, less uh, sure about, it, it, but it's very possible. You see, the, the King James uses a very odd word in verse 2. Um, they use the word borrow. Speak now in the ears of the people. Let every man borrow of his neighbor. Um, it's a general consensus today that the word borrow really isn't the ideal word to use. Um, shawal. It's used in 157 verses in the Old Testament, I believe, and 99% of the time it means to ask or to demand, to require. Um, this is not an idea of borrowing a book from the library that you're going to return later on. Uh, it's, it's, it's very much that you're asking, demanding, requiring something that is going to be in your possession. But when we talk about compensation, um, 
many will will say this is God giving them back pay. It's God um, recompensing them, giving them what they deserve for all the labor that they invested into the land of Egypt. And certainly, to some degree, we, what we see is God giving them what they need in the desert. Um, Philippians four nineteen promises to to um, his people that my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Um, and when I say needs, we're not primarily referring to financial needs here. We're talking about he takes care of his own. And certainly he's doing that here. But um, I, I, I'm not sure that that's really just the full picture of compensation. I think it actually goes beyond that. I, I want to be very brief on this point. But if you go to Deuteronomy 15 verses 12 to 15, you kind of see the process of releasing a slave, releasing a servant. And at the conclusion of verse 15, God says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you today. But earlier on in verse 13, it says, You shall not let him go out empty-handed. Furnish him liberally out of the flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your winepress. As the Lord has blessed you, you shall give to him. And so it's, it's, it's odd language. Why are we giving gifts to those that we're releasing? Why are the children of Israel taught to give gifts to the very ones who are being set free? Well, it says, uh, remember, uh, remember that you were a slave. And then it says that the Lord your God redeemed you. Uh, you see, we're not just giving the gifts because we remember what it was like to be a slave. We're giving the gifts because we remember what it's like to be redeemed. That's what he's calling these children of Israel to do later on to remember that redemption. Um, and, and I think that in this, the reason I, I give this as a point is because we have a picture of our life in Christ as well. That uh, now God's the one that's setting those enslaved by the enemy of the soul free. But there is such a beauty. What the catalyst is for them living in obedience later on when we get to the book of Deuteronomy is because of their redemption, because of how God did not just release them, but he uh, endowed upon them these uh, gifts of gold and silver. Um, he's a gift-giving God. But I think there's another aspect to all of this. There's something called the Stockholm Syndrome. You can look it up. It's really kind of a strange thing, but it's real. And uh, it's basically, it's a coping mechanism um, that captives oftentimes have in abusive situations. And so there's actually like these positive feelings that develop between the, the captor and the captive. And it, it, it gets a little bit strange sometimes. Um, especially in abusive situations. But what's fascinating is as God gives them these gifts as they're leaving, I've already mentioned this once, I think it's more than just getting the children of Israel out of Egypt. It's also getting Egypt out of the children of Israel. It's breaking these ties. It's breaking this relationship that they had with the land. It's, uh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a severing, a separation going on. So again, just you can look into this more, but um, was it compensation? I'm not sure if it really was compensation. Um, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, and, and certainly if, if you strongly feel that way, please share in the comments why you think it's compensation. But, uh, but I, I think it's about far more than just that. One other thing I would suggest is closure. This is where um, the historian Josephus leaned on the issue. Um, just closure. Let's get them out of here. Let's be done with these children of Israel. Maybe it was. But I certainly would go more with um, confession and compliance uh, more than even the compensation or the closure. So we've seen when God sends a plague, 
when God says please. But now let's look at that third and final point, when God stops persuading. Um, to persuade is just to cause someone to do something through reasoning or argument. And it's a normal process in any friendship when there's truth involved. You want to persuade others to see the truth, to see um, that perspective, whatever it might be. Uh, and God's been persuading. He's been persuading with uh, the people of Egypt. And some have believed, and we're even going to see a mixed multitude go out one day. But uh, in Acts 26, verse 28, you've got King Agrippa with Paul. And he actually says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Um, you see, the conversation now, it's over for Pharaoh. Judgment is coming Moses is just letting him know what the judgment is. And if you look in verse 1, you're going to see that um, one more plague I'll bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. That word drive away is to thrust, thrust out. Galrash, which means to drive out, to expel with force. Oh, man, consider the unwillingness of Pharaoh up to this point. And now it's not just un, uh, an unwillingness that's gone. It, it's, it's the get out. It's an it's a ultra willingness, right? Oh, man, Proverbs 19.21 comes to my mind. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Or again in Isaiah 14.27, For the Lord a host has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? And so there's no more invitations to repent. That's over with. And now we're moving on toward this Passover. Um, yeah, in this plague, there was no word asking Pharaoh to let my people go. That was past. That decision was made. My friends, when God pleads with you, respond. When God is persuading you, respond. Today is the day of salvation. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. Conviction of the Lord is a precious thing. But wow, what a tragic thing when we ignore it. Um, now, we're going to talk more about the Behor, the firstborn, um, the details of the plague when we actually get into chapter 12. Um, but for right now, I'm going to skip a little bit over some of those details. And I just want to point out a couple things as we conclude this episode. Now, obviously, the death of children period is one of the most um, tragic, devastating things that could happen in anyone's life. And the children of Israel know this well because their baby boys were thrown into the Nile back in chapter 1. But I also don't agree with the fact that because of the severity of this plague, that is why Pharaoh let the children of Israel go. Um, it's much more on God's timing. Um, God could have done it with no plagues. He could have done it with one plague. Um, he chose ten, and obviously the pictures of Christ in it are many. And so I just want us to be careful to not suggest it's because of the severity um, because you think about God's love. God's shown his love in the ultimate way possible by giving us his only begotten son, yet still today people reject his love. It's not that God, if only God would show himself in this way. No, God's shown himself in the most powerful way of loving us, and yet still souls reject him. But notice in verse 6, it says, There will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And that word cry is fascinating, obviously, um, translated here, I mean, it's in Hebrew, but when translated in the Septuagint, the word they use, kroge, comes from krazo. This is the word used from the cross when Christ cries out. So I want you to take in your mind just this picture that we're going to have of the Passover, and I want you to think about on that night when the firstborn died and the people are crying out simultaneously. One home would have enough crying out, let alone every home where there is death, crying out, mourning the loss of their firstborn, and yet I think of the Lord Jesus crying out from the cross, and yet how few were crying out around him. 
as, as the, the very one who is our righteousness died for our sin. Now, praise God, he's going to rise again on the third day. But I think of the one who took the blow for us so that one day we can stand righteous before the Father because he, the ultimate firstborn, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, took what we deserved and cried out with a loud voice before giving up the Spirit. And so um, we, we see a beautiful picture of Christ come out there. Also, I want to just make mention in verse 7, we have a distinction once again. Um, uh, th this just brings up, I have to be careful when I talk too much about Nahum Sarna. He frustrates me as a commentator for many reasons. Um, but the unbelief of the supernatural, and he tries to explain every plague away by natural means. And then we get to plague number 10, this final one. And he, and he has the audacity to say that finally there is a plague with no rational explanation that's possible. Um, and he says, it belongs entirely to the category of the supernatural. My friends, every plague has belonged entirely to the category of the supernatural. God has been making a distinction the entire time, and he does it again, and it says it in verse 7. But in verse 8, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Now, Moses is obviously the one saying it here, but man, doesn't this sound familiar? All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me. Um, the, the Septuagint translates this, this verb bowing down, proskuneo, uh, which is to fall down and worship, to worship, to throw kisses um, with one's hands as one's bowing down um, at the hem, at the ground of someone's garment. But wow, just please get this in your mind. An idolatrous people, the Egyptians, would be forced to bow before a Jewish man. Uh, why? Because of God's sovereignty, because of the power of God. Does this not ring a bell? My beloved friends, one day this is happening again, where every knee will bow before a Jewish man. Of course, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not a question of if you will bow. The question is, when will you bow? My friends, bow now while God is persuading. Bow now while the time is still there for you to repent and believe on the gospel. And if you have, may we embrace the heart of God that says, this is what I want. Please, I beseech you, speak now. Speak the words of life. Speak the words of grace. Because the time is coming when the end of this story will arrive and forever will begin, in some ways forever has begun. I understand that. Let's not get sidetracked. Um, this is the only, the, it's only the second time that the word throne is even mentioned in the Bible, um, which means a seat of honor. We saw it back in Genesis 4. We didn't see it, but in Genesis 41, you would have seen it, um, referring to the throne of Pharaoh in relation to Joseph. Now, we have this throne of his son, which is mentioned here in, in Exodus chapter 11. But ultimately, it's at the throne of Jesus, where we see that everlasting throne, the one who will never step down, the one who's never up for election, Pharaoh's firstborn, the one, the heir to the throne is going to die. But how thankful I am that we bow the knee to a king who will reign forever. Isaiah 52, 15 says, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has 
not been told them they they shall see or they see and that which they have not heard they understand how this points us to jesus but friends we're about to embark on the exodus we're about to first have the night of the passover and friends pictures of jesus christ are threaded through every part of this account so get ready for the journey Remember, this has been Into Your Bible. You can visit us at www.intoyourbible.org for much more information. I encourage you to subscribe if you don't want to miss an episode. And if you want to miss every episode after this, I ask one thing of you. Respond to Jesus Christ today because you just might not have tomorrow. And uh, if any of the resources can be encouraging, share them with friends. Um, But remember again, this has been Into Your Bible and it's a place where we seek a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.